cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. The discussion today is with Admiral Michael McConnell, who served both as the director of the National Security Agency and then as the second director of the Director of National Intelligence. He worked to retarget government efforts on cybersecurity and on modernizing how the U.S. conducts intelligence operations. So in some ways, he's one of the people who looked pretty far into the future and said, this is what we ought to be focusing on. Well, thank you for doing this. Sure. Uh, it's really an honor. We had you here for lunch in uh, late 2006, uh, right before you became DNI. Mm. And one of my colleagues, former journalists, asked you, what keeps you up at night? And we all thought, this is 2006. So we mm. thought you'd say terrorism or al-Qaeda or the Taliban. You said cybersecurity, mm -hmm. that cyber threat was what kept you up at night. And everyone in the room was really shocked. No one predicted that. Why did you say that? Well, um, when I went to NSA in 1992, mm -hmm. world had changed. Uh, my focus primarily was the Soviet Navy and the Soviet submarine force. I was fortunate enough to get selected for FLAG. I became uh, General Powell's intel officer for uh, what became Desert Shield, Desert Stone. And uh, as a result of that, we kind of did what we set out to do. <laughs> and everybody was looking around, okay, now what do we do? And, and I, I, I had been a one-star for... Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, about five months. And the secretary said, well, why don't we send McConnell? And uh, his staff said, well, you can't do that. And he said, well, well why not? And he said, well, he's only a one-star. That's three-star billet. And Secretary Cheney said, well, why can't I do it? And he said, uh, well, you just don't go from one to three. <laughs> he said, well, we'll see. And boom. So yeah. now I'm at NSA. I didn't know that. Uh, May of 92. The internet, it was just before the internet exploded. We had the internet, but it hadn't really, Netscape hadn't done WWW to make it, you know, usable for everybody. And everybody was rushing to embrace information technology. When I looked at that and started to think about what's the future of signals intelligence, and I'm, you know, consulting with my best advisors and so on, uh, basically is you're going to have to live in the network and own the network to do the nation's business. So we started a little project, and uh, the surpri first surprise was how easy it was. I mean, it was literally, if you wanted it, you could take it. And here was the issue. In the wireless world and the analog world, it was transmitting information from point A to point B. When it got to point B, it was on a printer that became a piece of paper that went into a safe or behind a locked door. It was hard to get access to. In the digital world, it was stored on a computer. And I referred to that as data at rest. What we were enjoying as success for exploitation was exploiting data at rest. I realized, I'm an economics major as an undergrad, I said, wow, I bet banking is rushed to enjoy this, and I poked around a little bit. 
And yeah, they were totally going digital and wealth was stored as ones and zeros. I said, well, goodness, if it's this easy for us to do this, what are the criminals gonna do? And more importantly, what are the nation states gonna do? And I, I just had an epiphany. Most people think of NSA as code breaking. Well, most people don't focus on the other side of NSA's mission is code making. Now there's legislation that prevents NSA from doing anything for the private sector or for the unclassified sector. Uh, there's NSA is supposed to secure the classified enterprise. So we had a lot of expertise and capability. And so I'm starting to worry and think about how do we do better uh, code making to protect information that's vital to the, to the nation. We're more vulnerable than anybody else in the world because we're, we're inventing it and we're embracing it and we've be, we're becoming digitally dependent. And, and that's only, that's 1992-3 is when I was going through that. That's only become uh, increased situation since that time frame. We are totally dependent on the digital infrastructure, uh, whether it's electric power or uh, money in banking or transportation. I, I give you an example. Uh, you, you probably call on occasion uh, the airline the computer goes down, mm-hmm. everything stops because you, you can't get passengers through or on or loaded or you know all your uh, the things you need to do to coordinate the flight of airplanes. So it just stops. So if you just magnify that to the fact nation states have now invented tools to be able to do transportation or electric power or money banking, uh, we're in a very uh, tenuous state. When you said uh, 1992, 1993, it of course made me think of the uh, clipper chip. Oh, yeah. Um, was that one of your uh, brainchilds? It wasn't my uh, idea, but, mm-hmm. um, but I embraced it. Mm-hmm. The thought was pretty simple. Um, and um, Most people refer to it as a, a backdoor. Mm-hmm. And another way to think of it is uh, 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 reasonable, well-designed um, encryption for which there are keys. And if you think about uh, protecting classified information, there are keys for everything. I mean, it, the, the big challenge for NSA in those days, we we're trying to do electronic key distribution because you think about global force, mm-hmm. entire military, and everybody had to change the key at the same time. So it made sense that, well, there are going to be keys. So the idea we came up with is, well, why don't we just escrow a key with a trusted authority? But uh, we're a nation of laws, and so if the FBI or, or the intelligence community needed access to a key for some legitimate purpose, you just go make your case, like you go to the FISA court today, and you draw the key and you do your, do your mission. So it made sense. So I went, I went around. I, interestingly, most people won't, won't, don't know this, but the first person I want to talk to is uh, Admiral Bobby Inman. Uh, very influential, been the director of NSA, been the deputy uh, DCI. And so he said, this is a great idea. This is a solution we ought to embrace. He said, I'll tell you what to do. Go see some members of the Hill and have a discussion with them. And I said, uh, all right, sir, who, who do you think I ought to talk to first? And he said, Joe Biden. So I went up to see Senator Biden, and 10 minutes into the conversation, he said, you're right. We ought to do this. <laughs> and so... We were getting a lot of support. Uh, now, the, er, the beginning of the idea was in the previous the Bush administration, George H.W. Bush. And they thought about it a bit, but now we had a new administration, uh, the Clinton administration. And early read, it was they, they supported it, but um, industry did not want to embrace it. And they pushed back so hard and so strong. Did the clipper chip battle prepare you for what you were going to go through when surveillance came up when you were DNI? Yeah, it did. Um, here was the dilemma. Uh, the Cold War was still going. 
we really need to do this thing called SIGINT, or Signals Intelligence. Um, so how would we legislate the rules? And the rules here, I'll simplify. The rules were if it's in the ether, if it's wireless, free game. Uh, no expectation of privacy, go at it. Uh, for legitimate targets for, for the intelligence world. If it is on a wire, and remember 1978, all phones had a little pigtail called a wire. If it's on a wire in the United States, you have to have a warrant. I'll tell you how hard, how hard it was. Soviet senior visiting uh, the UN, we had a issue where we didn't agree, and I wanted to uh, tap the telephone of the Soviet official. So you had to have the name, the location, and the phone number. Well, the official changed floors in the hotel. I got to go all the way back to the court because it's a different location and go through the same process. Well, it always stuck with me. So you remember uh, Stellar Wind in the claim. James Risen had written about it, and it was a big issue. So when I came back as DNI, I looked at the program, and I said, well, uh, you can make an argument that there's not a violation of law, but you can also make an argument that it is a violation. So I went to the president and said, Mr. President, uh, we've got to update this FISA legislation. He said, well, what do you mean? I don't understand. I said, well, let me give you a, an example. A terrorist in Pakistan is talking to a terrorist in Turkey via email, and they're planning to blow up two facilities in Germany, one, one German and one U.S. My access to that information is California. He said, Mike, I don't understand what he mean. I said, free email. So this email is very efficient. You can sit in some remote location in Pakistan, talk to somebody on the road in Turkey, and the place that you access it, if I'm going to get access, is going to be on a server for a free, mail, a free email service in California. I said, now, these guys are smart. They'll have 100 or 200 different email addresses. Uh, it's hard for me to find that. And I have to get a warrant. And I said, Mr. President, a warrant is you know, a stack of paper a foot deep. And it's a lot of lawyer time. It's a lot of coordination. you got to explain to the court and so on. I said, there should be no restriction on NSA targeting a legitimate target regardless of where or how we intercept it. He said, Mike, I agree with you. I don't fully understand all that. You do the right thing. So uh, the administration had looked at FISA and tried to do a couple things. Uh, once the president agreed, I took it on as primary duty, and it took us two years. What changed between when you were NSA director and when you became DNI? What was it the same challenge? Was it different? Uh, what did you inherit when you picked up a couple years later? Uh, the, the nation was more vulnerable. Uh, nation states had learned more about cyber war. When I was making my case as director of NSA, nobody was listening. <laughs> nobody wanted to touch it. I, now, remember, the average age in the Senate's over 70. And when I'd go to talk to them, they'd say, oh, Mike, you know, I don't, computers, I, you know, I don't, you have to talk to my grandchildren. I don't know about that stuff. So it was hard to have a conversation with people who weren't digitally uh, aware. Uh, so we didn't make much progress. Meantime, nation states, or criminals for, at one level, nation states are producing malware that can do uh, strategic harm at the rate of two or three or 4,000 capabilities per year. So my worry is, uh, hey, we're focused on counterterrorism. What happens when a sophisticated group gets some of these capabilities that could do some, some strategic damage to the United States? U.S. economy is $19 trillion a year. 
Every day, every business day, 13 to 14 trillion a day clears the banking system, the global banking system. So if you think about that, just just for a moment, we're the largest economy in the history of the world, 19 trillion a year, and I emphasize year. And every business day, 13, 14 trillion goes through the system. And it's all based on trust. It's all based on a digital infrastructure, and it moves to speed of light. So if you could get into that system and degrade or damage or more insidiously just uh, infiltrate so it's, there's loss of trust, it would shut down global banking. Uh, so, I mean, that's, a, that's an example of the kinds of things someone could do if they attempted to do it. Since then, um, the Russians, uh, no doubt they interfered with the election. Um, tried to influence it. Uh, they've now placed malware into the electrical grid. Uh, it's there as a contingency, given that we have some dust up between us and the Russians. They can do things that would be uh, uh, inconvenient to catastrophic in this country. Uh, the Chinese have learned about this. Uh, Everybody is well aware the Chinese do ec economic espionage to, to the detriment of the United States. Depending on who you believe, uh, some have said it's the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. At a minimum, it's probably half a trillion to a trillion dollars in damage that they do in economic espionage. Meantime, the Russians have these uh, cyber war weapons. Probably the most recent dramatic example was um, NotPetya. NotPetya was it uh, disguised itself as ransom a ransomware attack. But what the Russians did, they wanted to punish Ukraine. So they f found a tax system that everybody used, and they infiltrated a tax system in Ukraine, and it shut down 10% of the, of the computers, servers in Ukraine, uh, four hospitals, 22 banks, countless businesses. Also important, anybody who was doing business in Ukraine was similarly af uh, affected. Uh, the pharmaceutical here in the United States it was so bad, it cost them almost a billion dollars to recover. Mm -hmm. uh, the ship, big shipping line, Maersk, 20% uh, of the global shipping, shut them down in a day. And they, and they recovered by the skin of their teeth. They had something like 120 servers that coordinated everything around the world. And think about this. You got uh, 2,000 transfer trucks lining up at a, at a port facility. They've got things that need to be shipped all over the world. So there's a, an accounting for how you offload it, where you put it, how the cranes loaded on ships, all that's coordinated digitally. And all of a sudden they were blind. Uh, so the damage to Maersk for recovery was on the order of uh, $3 billion. That doesn't count the missed deliveries of just-in-time parts for manufacturing and all that sort of thing. They had uh, 120 servers that coordinated their global enterprise and 119 of them were wiped out. Mm -hmm. They were desperately trying to say, well, can we find a server to let us get back online? They found one in Africa that was offline because of a power failure. It wasn't infected. So now the race was, how do we get it? Uh, the data centers in UK, how do we get the, that server to the UK? That was a, that's a whole logistics nightmare there. But they did, and it took them probably a couple of weeks to get online. It, it, it took them months to be fully recovered. So that's, that's, a, that's an example of an information warfare weapon that had dramatic impact. Uh, estimates are $10 billion in damage, uh, just because they were trying to, the Russians, Russian GRU, 
was trying to inflict damage on uh, Ukraine. You recall they shut down electric power mm-hmm. in uh, 2015, 2016. Yeah, twice. So this was another another effort to do that. What do you think about NSA Cyber Command Link, maybe NSA having a civilian director for the first time? I think it's probably going to happen. Uh, my recommendation for who that person would be would be Chris Inglis for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I think separating them is a mistake. For Cyber Command to be able to do defense, or more importantly, their real mission is uh, offense, uh, degradation, destruction of uh, some enemy's capability. Um, If you'll think about it for a second, the skills to do that, it's much more challenging to go into a computer system, extract information, and leave no fingerprints than it is to go into a computer system and destroy it. So the skill level, the highest level of skill in the United States is maintained by the NSA workforce. So when uh, I sat down with um, former vice chairman, uh, House Cartwright, Jim Cartwright, mm-hmm. and Keith Alexander, mm-hmm. we agreed, as the three of us, I was the DNI at the time, I said, look, this is critically important that we have a, a cyber f- workforce that's a supporting commander to all the other commanders because this is the future. Uh, we agreed, the three of us, that uh, I would write a letter to the Secretary of, of Defense, Bob Gates at the time, and make a recommendation. One, he creates Cyber Command, and two, he dual hat that person as the director of NSA. When we had the opportunity to make the recommendations on creating Cyber Command, I knew that the bureaucracy would resist sharing any sensitive technical information even for national defense purposes, unless they were uh, forced to do so. And the way you do that is you have the same person run each organization. So Keith Alexander agreed with that. Jim Cartwright agreed with that. Uh, I put it in my letter. Uh, I wrote that letter in October 2008. Um, Secretary of Defense said, uh, I agree with you. It's going to take me some time. And I said, oh, by by the way, Mr. Secretary, that should be a – standalone unified command he said and eh, mike i just stood up africa command and and i'm a lot of slings and arrows <laughs> I, I i can't make it a unified command i'll make it a subordinate a, a, a sub-unified command subordinate to stratcom, stratcom. Yeah. so i made my argument at the time i said you know i stratcom's wonderful i got a wonderful mission but they got a lot on their plate and it's hard to do sigint from omaha uh they don't have the the access or the wherewithal and he said, yeah, I'll, I'm going to do it, but subunified. Now, they've now, you know, we've debated that for years. Yeah. So they've now stood it up as a unified command. Uh, and then the, the bureaucracies kick in to make their point, And there's a, a consistent argument inside NSA to which Chris Inglis agrees that it should be separated. And uh, I, just don't agree, I just don't think that's the best choice. You mentioned uh, DHS and the – couple questions have come up repeatedly since that organization was created relating to cyber. The first one is, you know, other countries have moved to standalone agencies, and the UK might be the best example. Singapore, Israel, France, do we need to move to a standalone agency? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, And there's a part of that that might happen now. McCall's bill, I think it's been agreed to by the Senate. I don't think it's been signed out yet, but it creates Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. I think of it in terms of DOD. DOD has a big staff, but it's not operational. 
if you want something done, you create an operational group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue NSA is an agency, is an operational organization of DOD to do SIGINT, uh, Defense Logistics Agency, you know, whatever it is to do. And, and for the fighting forces, so it's unified commanders. So what uh, DHS has done or will do if this uh, passes is create an agency to be operational on the cyber defense issue. Where do you think we are in terms of our opponents? I mean, when you look at them, and you've been watching the Russians certainly for a long time, Chinese for a long time. I throw in the Iranians as well, maybe the North Koreans. Where do you think our opponents are? What are they doing? And the Russians kind of caught us off guard in 2016. They did. I don't think we fully appreciated um, what the Russians were. were. Maybe we appreciated capability. We didn't appreciate intent and, and their activities. Uh, it, I always use a scale of one to ten. This is when I used to go to the hill. I I just learn if you've got a scale, everybody can understand. It's just easier to make your point. I would say uh, Russia, the UK, United States are tens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue that Israelis are right close. Uh, they don't have the same capability because it's not as global. Uh, in my time, two thousand seven, eight, nine. I would have said the Chinese were a seven. I would say today they're closer to eight and a half to nine. Uh, when the Iranians, you call our disagreement with the mm-hmm. Iranians, and we put in legislation that was signed out by President Obama that said we would develop a capability against the Bank of Iran. Well, the Iranians saw that and said, oh, we're going to go after the Bank of America. And now, not, not realizing it's a private bank, one of many, and so they launched an effort. I would put them on a scale of 1 to 10 at that time. This is 2010, 11, uh, as about a 3 or 4. Uh, today, I'd say they're 6. So they're coming on pretty strong. They bought a lot of it, and they got assistance from others. Uh, a lot of it was available on the dark web. and But they've developed some capability. They've they're improved their capability quite a bit. And uh, I'd say the North Koreans are probably 6. So it, it's uh, the most sophisticated nations are still dominated by the the primary players in the Cold War, but it's leveling. A lot of the discussion now is uh, how do you retaliate? How do you impose consequences? It's always been the challenge. Remember now, we had a capability going back to the Cold War. So I have sat at the decision table any number of times when you've got a terrible situation, no good options, and what can we do? And I would be the guy to say, well, if you choose to do so, we can do X, Y, or Z Mm -hmm. through cyber means. And many would embrace quickly, well, let's go do that. And then the people at the table, remember, it's the interagency, wait a minute. Uh, What are the secondary tertiary consequences? We're more vulnerable than they are. So that always restrained us. Uh, uh, If you look at it by administration, the Bush administration would have been more aggressive. The Obama administration was less aggressive in that area. Although in Bush, there mm-hmm. was there were many that said, no, 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 we're not going there because of the, of the potential consequences. Uh, current administrations lean pretty far forward on this, so it, I don't think it's played out yet, but uh, there's an intent to be much more aggressive operationally or offensively. How much do you worry about things like uh, proportionality and all the other laws of armed conflict when you do this. And related to that, one of the issues that came up in – so first, laws of armed conflict, proportionality. 
Second, sovereignty and the overfight issue, which was a impediment in the last administration. Proportionality is something we should embrace. The issue is there is no universally agreed mm. set of rules yeah. um, like the Geneva Convention for the cyber uh, area. And sovereignty is a challenge here because in the cyber world, there are no boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, a, this is a very hard, complex problem. I believe if I were in a position to influence the process, I would cause the United States to, lo- to, to lead an effort uh, you'd have to make some judgments on how to do that, United Nations or whatever. But we got there in previous times, largely led by the United States. If you, if you look at post-World War II, Bretton Woods, World Bank, mm-hmm. International Monetary Fund, rules of law. I mean, a lot of that was U- – U.S. was the principal player. Uh, the Chinese today, if you just read what uh, uh, President uh, Xi says in his speeches, he's going to change that. They've set up their own version of, of the uh, – uh, international Monetary Fund, an Asian International Monetary Fund. They um, they want to change the rules of the world order and put, in their view, and their, their thinking, China back as the middle kingdom that is the most influential. Most people don't appreciate this, but if you look at GDP, economists, you know, way back when, GDP for 2,000 years, the largest GDP in the world for, in, in the last 2,000 years, for 1,500 years, that was China. And, and America's been number one since the 1800s. We're, we're going to have to come to grips with the fact we're about to be number two. And so the world <laughs> in is income. in an income, right? Yeah. yeah and, and GDP. Mm-hmm. If you just measure it as, as gross GDP, uh, China will be, become the world's largest economy and they're going to have a bigger say in what the rules are. And they, their version of the rules are very different. Their form of government is single party, absolute control, monitor the citizens. Uh, that is not consistent with liberal democracy. So those two, it, it, it's, it, in my mind, it's, those two concepts are clashing just like liberal democracy versus communism. So in 2006, uh, you said the thing that kept you up at night was cyber. How do you feel now? Are we better off, worse off? We're worse off. Russians have developed more sophisticated capabilities. Uh, Putin's Under Putin's leadership, they're very aggressive. Yeah. They were In their minds, they were very successful in uh, what they did in 2016. Uh, they've used cyber extensively in the conflict with Ukraine. Uh, the Chinese have improved. They basically exploited every principal organization in the United States that produces intellectual property of value, whether it's the results of R&D or source code or business plans or a way to build a better mousetrap, whatever it might be, uh, through a series of, of penetrations, either people, send the best people, they get the job. Mm. Their mission is to bring home mm. the information. Joint venture, the rules are, and, and the rules have just gotten worse. You can do joint venture so long as there's a Chinese partner, but oh, by the way, we have to have access to your technology and all your information. If the police just have uh, a desire to do so, they can look at any company doing business with China, and they want to look at the information in their servers. Uh, and then, of course, there's the cyber means. They found cyber to be incredibly lucrative to take what they wanted uh, whenever they wanted it from whatever company they chose to do it. i give you one more example. There are known examples where there was a key technology that they really wanted, and so they caused the value of the company to collapse. And then when it was very low, they bought it. 
So they now had ownership of the of the company and the technology. So they're very, very aggressive and very sophisticated in how they're doing this. Uh, I love Dr. Strangelove, but um, – and you tried to do this when you were DNI. Is this discussion just too classified? Yes. I mean, do we do we need yes. to tell the American people more? I mean, what uh... – I would take on a review of the classification rules. If you remember, they were written in World War II. Uh, we were breaking Nazi Germany code. And so we came up with the concepts of need to know and protect information and you know, loose lips, sink ships, all of our culture. And there's a bureaucracy built up around enforcing those rules. I think those rules need to review, be reviewed. If you, if you make an argument that we needed that for World War II, and I agree, for, we didn't want the Germans to know we're breaking our code. If you could make an argument that served us well in a Cold War, I would agree. But we're in a different time now when the ebb and flow in the artifacts of what we're dealing with are mostly in the private sector. You know, over 90% are owned and operated by the private sector. So our classification rules are hamstringing us. So I would make much more information available. Now, remember, the uh, one of the primary missions of the DNI is to protect sources and methods. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a consideration. Mm-hmm. But we're way overly biased in protecting sens- uh, sources and methods as opposed to getting the information to the people that need it. I used to use an example. If we, we United States, gained information that there were terrorists about to blow up a bridge in Seattle, what is the responsibility of the, of the analysts that made that discovery? Mm-hmm. And the normal answer, well, write a report, uh, and I'm done. And I would say, no, your responsibility is to be in touch with the authorities who are not cleared in Seattle so they could secure that bridge and prevent it from happening. You got to save lives. Now that's a when I use that example people used to look at me like I was crazy. But it is in my view it's not uh, it's not need to know and it's not need to share, it's responsibility to provide. If if the US intelligence community can see what the Russians are doing and they want to attack elections or the banking system whatever and we know that It's a responsibility to get it delivered to people who can do something about it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You're one of my heroes. Thanks for listening to Cyber From The Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.